Brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. Kim folk, let us pray. Gracious and loving God, descend with your Holy Spirit like a dove and send us a word. Your children listen. Amen. There is a kind of kitschy poster that gets put up on the walls of churches across America, especially UCC churches, and it's a depiction of the golden rule as it is outlined in every major religion of the world. Has anybody seen this? It'll say under Islam or under Judaism or under Christianity. They all have their own formulation of the golden rule. You love your neighbor as yourself. And so today we have in the Gospel of Matthew from the lips of our Savior himself this commandment that we love our neighbor as ourselves. And I think that if it were that simple, we wouldn't have needed to continue telling this story over and over again for 2,000 years. But we know that it's not that simple because there are a lot of things that seem to get in the way of us simply loving our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus goes to great lengths and pains to widen the circle of who is included as our neighbor. He's preaching and teaching and healing in a part of the world where cultural and national and religious divisions are wider than at any other time in history. He's preaching specifically to a group of people, his disciples, the Galileans, who are looked down upon by their fellow Judeans, and then preaching to the powerful people in in. Jerusalem, who are looked down upon by their Roman occupiers, and preaching and teaching to those Roman occupiers who, not to put too fine a point on it, but found themselves posted in the deepest, darkest backwater of their own empire, right? These are not the Romans who live in palaces in, uh, in Rome, but rather have been assigned to this part of the world where their task is challenging. So, it would make perfect sense for the divisions between these disparate groups of people to keep them from communicating with one another at all, let alone loving each other. So Jesus says again and again, he says, it's not sufficient that you would love the people that look like you, worship like you, pray like you, believe like you. And it's not even sufficient for you to love the people who see you as a person but rather you have to kindle in yourself, in your heart, a desire and a discipline to love the people who hate you, who wish you harm. That is a very heavy burden to bear, which is why I personally believe that the second half of his teachings in the Gospel of Matthew are words of comfort and peace and hope. He begins with a tall, almost impossible order, but then says that we're going to be given everything that we need through the Advocate, through the Holy Spirit, to actually put this into action. I saw during the uh, beginning of the uh, pandemic of COVID-19, somebody wrote an article, I don't remember where it was written, but it had the lamentable title, I don't know how to teach you how to care about other people was the title of the article. Uh, It was a secular article. It didn't make any appeals to the Bible or any religious tradition whatsoever, but rather to the categorical imperative, the teachings of Kant. 
The categorical imperative or deontological ethics or whatever you want to call it is this notion that we ought to behave in the world as though what we do would become a law that everybody else would have to follow, okay? So for example, if I cut somebody off in traffic, I'm saying through my actions, I believe that everybody should be allowed to cut people off in traffic. That should be the law. But since I don't believe that, I don't do that. That when you do a thing, you are, you are expressing to the universe, to the powers and principalities that you think that that's the way the world ought to operate. And if you don't believe that that's the way it should be, then you don't do it. And would that it were enough, because I still cut people off in traffic. <laughs> and I still, um, I, I still do the things that I don't want to do. What does is, what is Brother Paul say? He says, I know what I ought to do, and I do not do it. And it pains me. So we have developed for ourselves meta-ethics or systems of ethics that are spiritual in nature, that come to us from God, our Creator. And hopefully that is sufficient to the task. But I can't teach you how to care about other people. And I think that this is one of Jesus' greatest pains. He's trying to use human language to teach people how to have empathy in a time when empathy is very, very hard to find. I know that there is a horrific war taking place right now in the Levant, in the very place where these words were written down. There is a genocide fomenting again. People who I know and love and have worked with have lost their homes. I have a friend here in uh, West Michigan who's uh, named Sam. He's in his 70s. He's Palestinian. And I saw him two weeks ago uh, right after these events had kicked off and he told me that he will not go back to Palestine. And I assumed it was because he was of a certain age that made travel hard on him. But I was, you know, trying to be gentle with him. And I said, you know, I think that this will calm down at some point. And, you know, maybe this is, the, maybe this is what it'll take to make peace. And he said, no, um, Habibi, I'm not going back to Palestine because everybody who I knew there is now dead. He said he had no reason to go back. The only family that he has remaining now lives in Dearborn and Florida. So he's been severed from his kinship with that place permanently. I don't know how to teach him to love the people who did that to him. And I look at my family members who live in settlements in the West Bank who we can't communicate with because they've now been cut off from cell towers. And the family members that I have that live in Tel Aviv who want nothing more than to just get up in the morning and go to work and not have to deal with this. Who think about this fight in the same way that a lot of us think about the nonsense that happens in Washington, D.C. It's embarrassing, it's expensive, it's pointless, and it doesn't need to happen. I can empathize with those feelings pretty strongly. How many of you have been to Tel Aviv? Have, have you been? I've been to Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv. A few. It's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. It's absolutely glorious. It, the beach. <laughs> there's. Imagine a beach that extends for eight miles, and and, and it's public. You can, it's like Lake Michigan in the Mediterranean. It's glorious. 
I want nothing more in, in the world than for Tel Aviv to simply be allowed to exist and be a beautiful place that we can travel to. The conflict that is at the heart of this teaching, whether you want to call it the golden rule or as I call it, the categorical imperative, and I'm going to unpack that in a minute, is that we're, it's not sufficient for us to simply love the people who it's easy to love, but rather we have to discipline ourselves to love people who are hard to love, people who disagree with us, and yes, even people who want to destroy us. You don't have to do that. In the words of Joshua, choose for yourself this day which God you will worship and who you will follow. You don't have to choose this path. In fact, if it's not a choice, it's nothing. But to be a Christian, to be a little Christ, to be a follower of Jesus, means that you are going to do the hard thing and choose to manifest love for people who you do not owe love to. And you're going to do it as a discipline because you want to be nearer to Jesus Christ. That's a very hard thing. It is not required. Nowhere in the United States Constitution or in case law anywhere that I've ever seen does it say that it's illegal to despise people who hate you. It's a perfectly reasonable and rational response to the frustration of being in the world. But to be a Christian is to say yes and... I'm going to do an extra thing that isn't required of me. An additional thing that, that, that is not written in the laws of humankind and say, in fact, I'm going to choose to love people who despise me. That's ah, a very hard thing to teach people how to do. There are some tricks that we have, though, as preachers, because we've been working on this thing for a very, very, very long time. And... I ask people to empathize by role-playing. When I'm working with uh, people who've never experienced homelessness or been unhoused, I'm working with people who've never slept rough, people who've never even been camping, and I have to try to teach them how to empathize with people who sleep in doorways in the winter in Michigan. It's a very tall order if you've never slept rough. I'm fond of saying that if I knew that tonight I had to sleep out in the snow, I probably would buy the strongest proof whiskey I could find. Drink the whole thing, walk it off in the morning. This is terrifying. It's utterly terrifying to be unhoused. You don't know. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. With all of your heart. There are those who say, and I'm, uh, I, I, I don't disagree with them, that the first commandment and the second commandment are actually just two ways of saying the same thing. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. And another way of saying this is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's on its face not particularly controversial. The Bible says that humankind were made in God's image. Now we're not idolaters, but we do believe that all people were made in the image of God. And so to hate your neighbor or a stranger or any human being for that matter is to hate a living icon of the creator of the world. To take this a step further, the theologian Carmen Nanco Fernandez, she wrote that when we look at humankind, we see radical diversity of color, love, gender, abilities, languages, nationalities. 
Why then is it so hard for us to see that same radical diversity in God the Creator? For if humankind were made in God's image, human beings are wildly diverse, so too then, that diversity is somehow present in God. So you're not allowed to hate people if you think that humankind is created in the image of God. You should treat your neighbor as yourself. There is uh, a downward ladder of sacrifice that is part of the Christian journey. The first level of sacrifice is to love those who the world expects you to love. Your family members, your children, your parents. Then the next is to love those who are part of your community. The people who look like you. I think next is to somehow love the people who vote like you or think like you. Maybe love the same people who follow the same sports teams that you do. It's just another rung. Next is to love people who you've never met. It's very hard to do. Empathy and proximity are very closely related. If you despise Hamas for the vile terror attacks that have been committed, I would challenge you to hate them as much if you knew them if you'd looked into their eyes, if you'd spoken to some of those 17-year-old boys who were born in a prison and had never seen the sky outside the walls of that prison. Likewise, then, to love people who are in prison, to love people who've committed crimes, to love people who've harmed others, and then finally, to love people who want nothing more than to see us extinguished from the face of the earth. That's the ladder of sacrifice that's asked of the Christian. That is the discipline that comes with discipleship. If I could do one thing, I would convince you all that you will live those lives. That when Jesus says you love your neighbor as yourself, he is not saying you love your neighbor as though you were standing in their shoes but rather you love them because you are standing in their shoes. The Eastern traditions have the wheel of samsara, this idea of reincarnation, dying and being born again into another life to work off your karmic debt. You go deep enough into the Vedic traditions, into the mystics of the Indian subcontinent, and you hear tell of a soul, the Atman, the one person created by God, who will live every single human life that has ever existed. If you knew today that when you died, you would be reincarnated as Donald Trump, (laughs) or you would be reincarnated as one of those 17-year-old Palestinian boys born in Gaza, or a family member of someone whom they had terrorized, brutalized, killed, or kidnapped, If you knew that you would die and be reborn as the poorest person in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and that you would live with fullness their life, would you behave differently? Would you think differently? Would you act differently? There is a saying amongst people who work in the Heartside District. I've heard it many times. Today, me, Tomorrow, you. By this, they simply mean to say that you are helping me today, but tomorrow it may be you that needs my help. And that's a fine economy of love. 
But if I could convince you of anything, it would be that you would need their help, that you will experience their pain, that you will know their suffering, and that it is incumbent upon you to do whatever you can with whatever you have as soon as humanly possible to alleviate their suffering. But we can't thrive in that world because we have responsibilities and jobs. We have to pay taxes. We've got to do all of the little things that divide us from our calling. And so we come back to God. Because if we don't, if we fail to read and remember and be remembered of the things that have been told to us by God, we will fade away into the warp and woof of this society that we were born into. We'll forget what our purpose is. And we will live from day to day doing our best to alleviate our own suffering. I don't blame people for that. I think that that's probably the most sensible way to try to get through this life. But I know that there is something more that Jesus Christ has asked of us. And I know also this, and I'll close with this, to surrender to that, to choose, even though it's the hard choice, to choose to love people, to choose to give to people, to choose to not look away when you see somebody eating out of a dumpster, to choose to not look away when you see a child crying or a man dying and suffering in prison, to not look away from the pain of this world, but rather turn toward it and to say that that is not some alien, that is not some inhuman thing over there, that's not some person with their own problems, but rather that's me. I am suffering there. And I have to do whatever I can to lessen that suffering because I will experience it myself. Because there was one who came before us who took upon himself all of the suffering of every single person who has ever lived or who will ever live and bore all of that suffering onto a cross. And in the fullness of time, went into death and died and yet lived. That that is the promise of the Gospels. And to be a Christian is only to be a little Christ. That's what the word means. So to go to places of darkness, despair, death, and suffering in order to take that suffering on and see it redeemed and liberated and repaired is to be very, very near to Jesus Christ. To be very near to Jesus Christ. And the final promise of God is this. It is not that there is holiness in suffering, but rather there is an absolute bounden duty to go to that place, to take that suffering on, to see it healed, and then to turn to those you see there and say the kingdom of God has reached unto you. That is the law upon which hangs all laws and all prophecy. And by doing so, we may be a part of God's shalom, of the peace that will finally come to fruition in this world. Let us be avatars of justice and love recklessly because it's what Jesus wants us to do. Not because it's sensible or because it's going to fill our bellies or our bank accounts, but because it is the way that we can be close to the one who is closest to us. Go and see living icons of the creator out there every day. And then come back next week and we'll remember 
Because you'll forget when you're out there. I know that you will. I know I will. We come back to remember. Amen? Amen. Amen.